This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. What does it mean to be a politically committed writer? Adam Schatz has been thinking about that for a while now. He's the U.S. editor of the London Review of Books and former literary editor of The Nation. He's also written for the New York Times Magazine, the New York Review, and the New Yorker, and he's host of a wonderful podcast called Myself with Others. Now we have a book of his essays, Writers and Missionaries, Essays on the Radical Imagination. We reached him today at home in Brooklyn. Adam, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Always a pleasure. Well, today an author's identity is crucial. Women and people of color have authority to write about their experiences and ideas, as do LGBTQ writers. But there was a time when you were a student a while ago when the death of the author was the ruling idea in literary criticism. That was the title of an essay by Roland Barthes, who said, it is language which speaks, not the author. And Michel Foucault agreed, asking, quote, what difference does it make who is speaking? And then finally, Jacques Derrida, whose motto was, there's nothing outside the text. That was the world of literary theory when you arrived at college in 1990. What did you think about the idea that it is language that speaks, not the author? Well, I admit that at the time I, I, I bathed in, in this idea. It seemed the height of sophistication, totally counterintuitive, which was part of its attraction and all the, the cool people were talking about it. So <laughs> what was not to like? Um, the idea behind it, of course, was that any kind of focus on a writer's life and experience, the writer's relationship to history, led you away from the play of language, from the words in the text, and in a sense, was a way of controlling, limiting interpretation. I mean, in effect, what Bart and Foucault were saying was that the, the very name of the author is a policing function. It limits what you can say about a text. And so it seemed very libertarian in a way. And for that reason, um, I found it appealing, but it also went against some of my other instincts. You quote a wonderful line from Jean-Paul Sartre's 1948 essay, What is Literature? What did he say about writers? Writers are alive before they're dead. His argument was that writers make choices. They take up moral and political positions in their prose. They're, you know, they are connected to institutions of, of power and, to, and they are writing for a public. And uh, Sartre was, was drawn to that field of activity in a way that I think you know, Barthes and Foucault really weren't. So for the generation of intellectuals writing after World War II, Sartre personified the engaged intellectual. This, of course, was the age of existentialism. But you write about Sartre, the man was more important than his ideas. Please explain. I think I say that the man was more important than his ideas in an essay about Sartre's impact on Arab writers um, and writers in the Middle East where he had an enormous impact because of his bold anti-colonialism and his opposition to the war in Algeria and ultimately his support for the Algerian National Liberation Front. And I think that while Sartre's uh, existentialist projects certainly had some, some influence among Middle Eastern and Arab philosophers, his influence was much deeper as a public figure, as an, as a rep, as an, as a, um, an exemplar of what a universal intellectual 
uh, could be. And ultimately, that was also true of his impact in France. Uh, Sartrean existentialism is a finished project, but the idea of the universal intellectual still holds some appeal, even though there are very few practitioners today. There is an aura to Sartre, you know, which he never quite lost in spite of all the efforts of younger philosophers to slay the mighty father. Okay, the background and biography of writers shaped their work, but that's not the most important thing. Most important, you write, is how they choose to interpret their past, how they incorporate this understanding into the project. And you're talking here not just about political choices, but also about their aesthetic commitments. Yes, you know, my argument is not that, uh, that writing is regurgitated biography. It's not. I'm not saying that you can reduce a philosophical project like Derrida's deconstruction to the life that he led. Clearly you can't. But if you, if you read Derrida's work and some of his concerns against the backdrop of, of his life, particularly of his childhood, you begin to see that some of the ideas in deconstruction, for example, the critique of binary thinking, uh, are rooted in uh, this, the traumas that he suffered in Algeria um, in the 1940s when he was a school child uh, evicted uh, from his school when Algerian Jews were stripped of their citizenship. Now, Derrida was not an Andijan, he was not a native, he was not an Arab or Berber, but at the same time, he wasn't a French settler. He was from uh, a community of, of Algerian Jews who traced their origins to both Jewish Berbers and to uh, Spanish Jews who had fled the Inquisition. So these uh, Algerian Jews were a third party. They were not colonizer or colonized. You can see the relationship between that and Derrida's critique of binarism. So I'm not saying that's all deconstruction is, but I'm saying that our understanding of deconstruction as a humanistic project is deepened by engagement with the life. You've always been fascinated by ideological conversion, especially thinkers who move from left to right. You open your book with Fuad Ajami, the most politically influential Arab intellectual of his generation in the United States. He died in 2014, was a political scientist and a professor at Princeton, then Johns Hopkins, who started out as a critic of American power and a defender of Palestinian rights and also a critic of the failings of Arab politicians and intellectuals. And he was a MacArthur genius, class of 1982. How did he end up? You know, it's, it's funny that you described Ajami as the most politically influential uh, Arab intellectual of his time. And I guess, you know, that's true. I mean, I was just thinking, was Edward Said as influential? Well, intellectually, but not politically. And it's because of where Ajami ended up. Ajami uh, eventually gravitated towards a kind of neoconservative establishment. And uh, in the days before the Iraq war, Dick Cheney was citing Ajami's authority that the Iraqis would greet the American soldiers invading with rice and flowers. Uh, so, uh, no, uh, Ajami's uh, trajectory is a, is a very striking one. And I, I was fascinated by this story because, you know, he'd started out as um, a child of, uh, of, of Lebanese Shia parents in an area of Beirut called Arnoun and uh, was you know, early on uh, enraptured by Gamal Abdel Nasser and, and Pan-Arabism, became a, a very thoughtful and judicious critic of American power in the West uh, when he arrived in the States, um, was very close to Saeed, 
and then traveled this road towards uh, the American empire, which, which, which uh, embraced him with alacrity. Um, he was often on tele, he was a, constantly on CBS, in fact. I write about him very critically, of course, but also with some admiration for the elegance of his prose and for the insights of his early work. And I think that this, there, there's something tragic about the story, too. Another theme of your book is Black American writers who went into exile in France. Today, when we look back on Black writing in America since World War II, James Baldwin is everything. But there was a time in the 40s when Richard Wright was not only America's most famous and commercially successful Black writer, but also an international literary celebrity. Of course, in 1940, he had published the novel Native Son, the unforgettable story of Bigger Thomas, who kills two women, one white and one black. And then in 1949, a young black writer named James Baldwin attacked that book. And you write, its author never really recovered. First of all, remind us about Richard Wright and Bigger Thomas. Why was Bigger so important? The critic Irving Howe said that Native Son changed the face of American literature, and I don't think it's an exaggeration. There had not been a novel that had depicted in such a blunt and brutal fashion the rage and fury of a poor black man from the American slums. Bigger Thomas was in that sense a, an utterly revolutionary invention. Wright had earlier published a collection of stories, Uncle Tom's Cabin, and when he found out that um, it had become so popular, he was determined to write a novel that would scandalize, infuriate, and terrify middle-class white readers. He, he certainly succeeded with Native Son. And what was James Baldwin's critique in 1949? Uh, Baldwin was a, was a huge admirer of Richard Wright's memoir, A Black Boy, which was published in 1945, and in fact said that he could never quite forgive Richard Wright for having written that memoir, because that's the book we all wanted to write. <laughs> um, but he, he was very troubled by Native Son, and he wrote about it in a kind of addendum to a piece about Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin. And his argument was that uh, in Richard Wright's novel, as in Uncle Tom's Cabin, the reality of the black character is essentially reducible to that person's categorization. Richard Wright had not written a character like Richard Wright. He'd <laughs> written a character who was a, a symbol of violence and monstrosity. Now, it's important to remember that when Baldwin read uh, Native Son, some very important passages had been expurgated because the book had been chosen by, by the Book of the Month Club. And as a condition of its inclusion, uh, Wright had to cut passages in which it's clear that the white woman he kills, Mary Dalton, uh, wants to have sex with him. In the, in the version of Native Son that was published at the time, he appears to be killing her without motive, except the fear that he would be caught in a bedroom with a white woman. In the novel, in the original novel, Mary Dalton, who's drunk, is turned on, and so is he. And it is, it is a consensual moment. And that, is, that moment was utterly scandalous from the point of view of the Book of the Month Club. And so the story lost a good deal of its erotic complexity. So, you know, it's important to remember that Baldwin was responding to that and not to Wright's original intentions. Nevertheless, what Baldwin, I think, felt was that Wright had written 
a kind of 30s style social realist novel using a black man as a symbol rather than exploring the complexities, especially the psychological complexities uh, of black experience. I think another criticism that Baldwin had was that there is that you do not see a restorative, nurturing black community in Native Son. In Native Son, the black individuals are almost anomic. The family barely seems to count for anything. You know, in Baldwin, the black family is everything. It's, it's where you go in hard times. Right depicts his characters as alienated, lonely individuals who are denied even the comforts of tribe. And uh, Baldwin, Baldwin objected to this. But this was certainly the way that Richard Wright understood his world. And who was James Baldwin when he went after Richard Wright in 1949? Well, you know, Baldwin was a, was a young writer. He was, um, he was barely 25 years old. He, he'd moved to Paris a year earlier. He published the piece in a, in a Paris-based magazine called Zero and then republished it in the Partisan Review. And not long after that, wrote a follow-up to the piece in which he attacked Richard Wright even more harshly, Many Thousands Gone. It's very important to recall that that Richard Wright was uh, an idol for, for James Baldwin. James Baldwin had gone to Richard Wright's home just before Richard Wright and his and his wife, Ellen, and their, their young daughter moved to Paris. And when he went to visit the Wright family in Brooklyn, Wright plied him with bourbon and took him on as a kind of protege and arranged for Baldwin to get uh, an important grant, the Eugene Saxton grant, which allowed Baldwin to continue writing his novel, his, his autobiographical novel, uh, Go Tell It on the Mountain. So Richard Wright was sitting in a, a cafe in Paris when Baldwin entered on the day of the publication of that 1949 piece, called Baldwin over to his table, said, said I want to have a, a word with you, young man, and accused Baldwin of trying to destroy him. And Baldwin writes in a in a retrospective essay that he wrote in 1961 after, after Richard Wright's death, that he it never occurred to him that he could destroy the <laughs> reputation of a man like Richard Wright. But in a sense, he did. I'm exaggerating, of course, but um, the but the the impact on on uh, on Wright's reputation was was lasting. Your essay on Richard Wright focuses on his days as an expat in in France, starting in 1946. Of course, this takes us back to existentialism. What did Jean Paul Sartre think about Richard Wright and Bigger Thomas? Sartre was a was a great admirer. Uh, of Richard Wright, as was Simone de Beauvoir. They, they loved um, Native Son and Black Boy and published uh, translations of the work in the existential journal Les Temps Modernes, which is where uh, readers like Franz Fanon first discovered uh, Richard Wright's work. And it was felt, I think, that Wright was a kind of um, intuitive existentialist, that his exploration of Black life in America Yes, it was a kind of raw existentialism. And, and Wright uh, became very curious about existentialism when he got to Paris and uh, wrote a novel um, called The Outsider, which is stuffed with existential ideas for, for better or for worse. Although Wright, I think, also had a sense that perhaps the existentialists needed him more than, uh, more than he needed them. He was standing in front of his library one day with uh, the Trinidadian uh, Marxist writer, uh, C.L.R. James, and he said to James, you see all those books, existentialists, Kierkegaard, Carl Jaspers, et cetera. 
I, I understood that before I even read them. <laughs> and that was another one of Baldwin's objections to write in his later essay, Alas, Poor Richard, the one that was published after his death in 61. And it was that uh, Wright had forged this relationship with existentialists who had no feeling for black life. And then there was one best-selling black American writer in the 60s who celebrated Native Son and Bigger Thomas, Eldridge Cleaver. What was his view? Well, Eldridge Cleaver regarded Bigger Thomas as a proto-revolutionary because he had carried out these extremely violent acts against white power, the, the daughter of a very wealthy white man who had employed him. And he found the language of, uh, of, of Native Son, he found the, the kind of carnal embrace of violence and the relationship between violence and uh, self-liberation to be enthralling. Remember that Bigger Thomas comes into an awareness of himself as an individual, of his freedom in killing. It's the first time he actually feels like a man. And, and for Eldridge Cleaver, who had spent all this time in prison and who you know, had been involved in various violent activities, he felt a great sense of identification uh, with Bigger Thomas. Now, oddly enough, one of Richard Wright's fiercest critics and a man who had been his protege, his friend, Ralph Ellison, had once defended Native Son in almost exactly the same terms in correspondence with Richard Wright. The history around Native Son, its, its admirers and its critics, is, is truly fascinating. One other thing, Richard Wright had been a member of the American Communist Party. How did that work out? Well, you could argue that it worked out very badly, of course, because Richard Wright became very frustrated uh, by the party in World War II, uh, when it put aside its very admirable anti-racist work to support the war effort. And Wright also uh, opposed the entry into the war uh, initially. And he became so frustrated with the party that he eventually left and he wrote a famous essay that appeared in The God That Failed. So from that point of view, one could argue that Richard Wright's story is the classic story of the left-wing intellectuals who joins the party and then leaves. However, there's also a strong argument that Richard Wright owed a great debt to the political party, even though he eventually outwore it. It was in the political party that he first found his voice as an intellectual, as a writer. It's where he realized that there was a space in American life where black and white people could actually interact on an equal plane, where black people could have leadership positions, where black people could be in a position of authority towards whites. And he wrote his earliest work, some of his best work, as a communist. Even Native Son is the work of a communist writer. So I think the Richard Wright's relationship to the Communist Party is a complex one. I, I, I don't think it's a matter of simply of someone who is stifled by a party and emancipates himself from it. That's a part of it, but the early part is also true. The title of your book is Writers and Missionaries, but the last essay is called Writers or missionaries. What's going on here? The change in the title reflects uh, an updating or uh, in my thinking or, or an added nuance. When I, in 2014, I gave a lecture about my experience of reporting in the Middle East and it was titled Writers or Missionaries and it drew upon a conversation that I had with V.S. Naipaul, uh, the Nobel Prize winning Trinidadian Indian writer, just after 
um, 9-11. And V.S. Naipaul said, if you're writing on a subject as controversial and sensitive as political Islam, as Islam, you have to make a choice. Are you a writer or are you a missionary? Are you willing to discuss things that are taboo, that are troubling? Or is your main interest soft peddling these realities and presenting something in a noble light? Now, if anyone was a missionary on the question of Islam, it was V.S. Naipaul. I mean, Naipaul however brilliant a novelist he was, was also quite Islamophobic. I mean, toward the end of his life, I think he was very sympathetic to the, the Modi regime in India. And I'm not even talking about his, his views on, on Black Africans, which are just as troubling. However, the comment did stick with me. I, I do think that there, there are tensions between being a writer and being a missionary, between being a committed writer and being an analyst between being a critic and being an advocate. There are tensions. And the, the purpose of that talk was to underscore the tensions. But in the book, you know, my argument is that it's not a binary. It's not clear cut. As a writer, you're, you're both. And your relationship to these things shifts depending on context, depending on mood, depending on what, what you're responding to. And so that's why I decided that the title needed to be adjusted. And finally, we often praise people who speak truth to power, but you say, first of all, that's not so easy. And second of all, that's not your primary goal in your work. Please explain that. It's not that I think that speaking truth to power is unimportant. It's not that I think it shouldn't be done. I've certainly done a fair amount of it myself and will continue to do that. It's just that I think the most interesting, most lasting writing asks questions more than attempting to resolve them. And what's more, I've become much more interested in how a position is argued than in what its ultimate argument is. And so to me, the lasting interest of writing lies more in details and in nuance, in complexity of expression. And so I, I, I guess, you know, that sentence reflects the fact that I was getting a little bored with writing that is simply about exposing injustice. There is, of course, a place for that, particularly in muckraking reporting. But I think when we're reflecting on experiences and realities that are so multifaceted, that simply calling out abuses is not enough. And often it can be an excuse for failing to look within, for for performing kinds of self-reflection that are just as significant, just as important. Adam Schatz, his book, Writers and Missionaries, Essays on the Radical Imagination, is out now. Adam, thank you for all your work, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. 